The reading this morning can be found on page 1082 in the Church Bibles, taken from John chapter 14, verses 1 to 6. Page 1082, John 14, 1 to 6. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. I'm going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you may be where I am. You know the way to the place where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going, so how can we know the way? Jesus answered, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Donald. Shall we begin with a prayer? Let's pray. We thank you, Lord Jesus Christ, that you do indeed show us the way to the Father and that you reveal the Heavenly Father to us. And so we pray that as we look at this familiar and wonderful verse, that you would refresh our hearts again with all that you mean to those who follow you. We ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen. It is the curse of being a teenager that when adults are stuck for conversation at a party, they will ask that question, what are you going to do when you grow up? Do you remember that? I try and not ask that question myself, but occasionally find myself behaving like my former great uncle. I was always stuck for an answer to that. There were two things that I knew I definitely didn't want to do. One was to be a teacher, and the other was to be a vicar. And I've spent the last 31 years doing one or the other. But as a schoolboy, if I had any career aspirations at all, it would either to be a lawyer, because a friend of mine, an older friend, was a barrister, and uh, he seemed to have an inordinate amount of summer holiday. He'd spend six weeks on his yacht in July and August. Or if I wasn't going to be a lawyer, I was going to be a professional tennis player. Now, there wasn't much evidence on a tennis court to support this fantasy, but what could be better than being paid to do what you love most? All the glory from those adoring fans, all the money and all those houses and all the things that go with it, all those beautiful tanned girls wanting me to be their special friend without a care in the world. You can see what a delusional teenager I was and how shallow I was as well. Because, of course, it is all a dream. It's a fantasy, not just for me, but for anyone, even the most beautiful and successful and famous. Life just isn't like that. Glory, money, houses, girls, without a care in the world. Everyone has cares and worries. A little research into people's top fears reveal the following. Top eight fears. Fear of failure. Fear of rejection. Fear of loneliness. Fear of emptiness. Fear of the unknown. Fear of bereavement. Fear of dying. Fear of death. No great surprises there. 
And it's also no great surprise to hear that some of the most successful people share these fears with us. So Pete Sampras, describing the year leading up to his record sixth consecutive year as world number one tennis player, said that it was an utterly miserable year. He was terrified of not breaking the record. He didn't sleep properly. He didn't eat properly. He developed nervous tics. I was utterly miserable, he said. The fear of failure. Or as uh, we were hearing last week, I think, from Roger Simpson, Boris Becker, the youngest ever winner of the men's singles title at Wimbledon at the age of 17, before most of us have even taken our A-levels, let alone answer the question about what we're going to do when we grow up. He nearly committed suicide at the age of 22 out of an overwhelming sense of futility and emptiness. One supermodel turned actress said, I had everything anyone could want, houses, cars, money, fame, beautiful children, and yet was totally and miserably unhappy. I lacked the one thing that we all want, a loving, ongoing relationship. And so we could go on. But perhaps the biggest fear of all and the most universally held fear is the fear of death and dying. Listen to this letter from someone who wrote to an agony column recently. For the last eight months, I've been consumed with my mortality. I know death is inevitable, but I fear it. It's not so much death, but what happens after death? Is there nothing? An empty void with no self-awareness? Or is there some truly definite place of peace where I can be reunited with my loved ones? I often struggle to sleep at night. I'm so overwhelmed by thoughts of death. I wish I could go back to my normal self and enjoy my wonderful life. I wish I was a spiritual person, but my rational mind will not allow me to believe in blind faith. Can anyone help? I felt so sorry for this person reaching out for help and then felt even sadder reading the advice that they were given. Sit quietly and listen to death, whatever that means. Write poetry and get yourself published. Hope for the best. Embrace death as a friend. Well, not a lot of help there, is there? I was longing for the agony aunt to say, turn to the Lord Jesus Christ, who said, I am the way, the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. We're working our way through these great claims of Jesus Christ in John's Gospel, where he helps his followers to see that he and he alone is the one who can bring purpose and fulfillment to our lives. When he says, I'm the bread of life, he who comes to me will never go hungry and he who believes in me will never be thirsty. Only Jesus ultimately satisfies and Jesus and Jesus alone can enlighten our spiritual darkness when he says I am the light of the world whoever follows me will not walk in darkness but will have the light of life and today we have this great verse John chapter 14 verse 6 where Jesus says I am the way and the truth and the life no one comes to the father except through me. 
Jesus here is speaking to his disciples on the night before he died. And he tells them not to worry. He doesn't say embrace death or sit quietly and listen to death. He tells them he's going to leave them, but he's preparing a place for them in heaven at his father's house, and he's going to come back to fetch them and take them to join him. And Thomas, who doesn't quite get it, says, Lord, we don't know where you are going, so how can we know the way? Don't you love Thomas? He's often known as Doubting Thomas, but actually I think he probably speaks for a lot of us. And if he hadn't asked that question, then Jesus wouldn't have replied with verse 6. Thomas says, Lord, we don't know where you're going, so how can we know the way? Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus comes out with one of the great verses in the New Testament. And it's such a great verse because here Jesus is offering purpose and direction in our emptiness. He's offering us certainty for our confusion and our lostness. And he's offering us hope and the promise of heaven for that almost universal fear of death. Let's just look at these three bold claims in turn. First, when Jesus says, I am the way, he's offering us purpose and direction to a bewildered and empty world. A friend of mine called Chris, who's a successful businessman and landowner and was a member of the House of Lords in the old hereditary days, once said to me, Tim, why are you a vicar? There's no status, no prospects, and no salary. <laughs> I thought, good question. But my reply, the one I came up with on the spur of the moment, was that the job I do gives me fantastic job satisfaction, a great sense of purpose in following Jesus Christ and serving him, and also a great joy in helping others to follow him too. And I said to Chris, give me job satisfaction over salary and status any day. I don't know if he was satisfied with that, but verse 5, Thomas says, Lord, we don't know where you're going, so how can we know the way? He speaks for so many, for so many who don't know Jesus Christ, for so many who've never read his teachings, who've often even dismissed him without ever reading a gospel. So with Thomas, they say, how can we know the way? How can we know the way through life? How can we have that sense of purpose? And ultimately, how can we know the way to heaven? And Jesus says, I am the way. In other words, follow me. Apparently, in the Middle East, still today, if you're lost and you ask for help, someone will either direct you to a map and say, follow those directions, or they will actually say to you, I am the way. In other words, I'm going there myself. Come with me. Let me lead you there. And that is what Jesus says to us in our bewilderment and emptiness. Running through life like exhausted ham hamsters on a wheel, going hard, but going nowhere. He says, I am the way. Follow me. 
And did you notice he says, I am the way and the truth and the life. And just in case we missed that, he goes on, no one comes to the Father except through me. In other words, if you want to get to my Father's house, if you want to get to your heavenly home, then follow me. Now, some people would say that when Jesus says, no one comes to the Father except through me, it's rather an exclusive claim. It's rather an arrogant claim. And in our relativist world, we don't like being told that some things are right and some things are wrong. And of course, it would be exclusive and arrogant if it weren't true. Come with me on a journey to the highlands of Scotland. We're heading for a castle. We've been invited to spend a weekend in this castle with the laird. And as we drive our way through the highlands, we get a little bit lost. We're on a mountain road and we come to a fork in the road which has no signpost. So we stop and ask people the way. It just so happens that the first person we talk to is, is a man who's pitched his tent there, right by the fork in the road. And he says to us when we ask for directions, I don't think there is a castle, so I'm just staying put here. Well, he's not much use. So the second person we ask just shrugs and says, I've absolutely no idea. You do what you want. And the third person we ask says to us, well, all roads lead to the castle. Or at least, I hope they do. It would be rather tough if we took the wrong turn. And he says it would be rather arrogant to assume that one way was right and the other way was wrong. And he says to us, take your pick. I hope we'll meet at the castle. But none of these answers are very satisfactory if we're wanting certainty about where we're going. And then fortunately, a fourth person appears, and it happens to be the laird himself walking down one of the roads to join us from the top of the hill. And he says to us, you know what? You'll never get there on your own. You'll be hopelessly lost. I know the way, obviously. That's where I'm going. That's home. I'm the laird after all. Why don't you follow me? And Christians put their trust in the Lord Jesus Christ because they are convinced that he is Lord and God. He is like that laird. He's the sort of heavenly Lord, heavenly laird. He's the one who comes from heaven. He's the one who came and lived and died on the cross for us. He's the one who opened the way to heaven. He's the one who says in verse 3, I go and prepare a place for you and I'll come back and take you to be with me. He's the one who says, I am the way. So follow me. He offers us purpose and direction in our bewildered and empty world. Second, when Jesus says, I'm the truth, he offers us certainty in a confused world. I read recently of a student with the following books on his bedside table. Jean-Paul Sartre's Nausea, Playboy magazine, The Communist Manifesto, The Bible, and a self-help book entitled How to Stop Worrying. 
People look anywhere and everywhere for the answers to life's big questions. And the Bible unashamedly claims to tell the truth about God and about mankind and about our relationship with God and how in spite of our rebellion against him and our independence, what the Bible calls sin, God is still interested in us. We all matter to God. The Bible speaks the truth about God. Jesus says, I am the truth because he is God. Sometimes the truths he tell us, tells us are wonderful truths and are, they rejoice our hearts. Sometimes they're uncomfortable truths. They're rather unpalatable. Back in 1982, my father looked rather tired and unwell. I went home for a weekend and I said, said, Dad, you're looking tired and unwell. Why don't you take a holiday, a bit of sun? He also went to see his doctor who told him, you need heart surgery. In fact, you can't even go home. We're going to operate tomorrow. Two different people, two well-meaning people, both offering advice, quite contradictory advice. Only one of them was well-informed. The other was me. Fortunately, my father didn't listen to me and my well-meaning advice. But he listened to the one who was qualified to speak, the one who spoke the truth, the one with authority. And so the next day he had his quadruple heart bypass and lived another 30 years, unlike his own father, who died in his 50s. And the Bible is rather like the doctor's advice. It is the word of God. When Jesus speaks, God speaks. When Jesus says, I am the truth, he is telling us, listen up. And Dr. Jesus' diagnosis is sometimes uncomfortable to hear. We all need forgiveness. It's sometimes wonderful to hear. We are all deeply loved. As we've just sung, God knows everything about me and, amazingly, God loves me. Isn't that extraordinary? In fact, he loves us so much that he came to this earth to die on an ugly cross so that we might be forgiven. So that if we turn to Dr. Jesus, the heavenly lad, and if we follow Jesus and put our trust in Jesus, we can be forgiven. And in our confused and distracted and pleasure-seeking world, Jesus speaks with great clarity about the truths of our situation, the truth of God's love for us. He is the one who says, I am the truth amid, amid all sorts of conflicting truth claims. So in our relativist, confused world, let's trust Jesus who says, I am the truth. And thirdly, when Jesus says, I am the life, he is offering us hope and the promise of heaven amidst the almost universal fear of death. For many people, heaven is a very nice idea in theory, but they'd rather not think about it or talk about it just yet. Thank you very much.
A pastor was once visiting a woman in his congregation whose husband had died a couple of years earlier. And the pastor asked her, where do you think your husband is now? And the woman replied, I imagine that he's enjoying all sorts of eternal delights and bliss in heaven. But I'd rather not talk about such unpleasant things right now, thank you very much. However, we can only live well when we know we can die well. If, whenever we're faced with our fears of death, we say, I'd rather not think about such unpleasant things, then we'll remain crippled by our fears and we'll never face up to the joys of being with God in heaven. Just look again at chapter 14, verse 2. Jesus says, In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. I'm going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I'll come back and take you to be with me so that you also may be where I am. One theologian said, We know very little about heaven, but we do know it's an unknown region with a well-known inhabitant. It's rather lovely, isn't it? An unknown region with a well-known inhabitant. The uh, Puritan writer Richard Baxter put it like this, My knowledge of that life is small, the eye of faith is dim, but it's enough that Christ knows all, and I shall be with him. It's so wonderfully liberating to know that death is not the end, that death is actually a glorious new beginning where we go home to be with Jesus. A friend of mine, his grandfather died at the grand old age of 95, and shortly before his death, he recorded a message that he asked to have played at his funeral. You <laughs> can imagine the uh, surprise of the mourners sitting there in the church with a coffin in front of them, hearing this familiar gravelly voice saying, some of you have come here because you've heard I'm dead. Well, you're wrong. I'm more alive now than I've ever been before. And that is the Christian hope. That is Jesus' promise of heaven. That because Jesus died and rose again, so death is defeated. Death holds no fears. We can look at death in the face. That we can be with the disciples who heard Jesus say, I'm coming back to take you to be with me. So in our fearful world, let's put all our confidence in the one who says, I am the life. In the one who defeated death. Jesus said, I am the way, so let's follow him. He said, I'm the truth, so let's trust him. And he said, I'm the life, so let's put our full confidence in him. The question I want to ask you is not, what do you want to do when you grow up? Because some of us are grown-ups. But now that you are grown-up, can I ask, are you following, trusting, placing your full confidence in the one who said, I am the way and the truth and the life?
And if you are trusting, thank God for that again this morning. And if you've never put your trust in the Lord Jesus or are unsure about it, then please come and talk to me at the end of the service. I'd love to help you make it clearer for you. Let's pray. Eternal God, whose Son, Jesus Christ, is for all mankind the way, the truth, and the life. Help us to walk in his way, to rejoice in his truth, so that we might share in his risen life, for Jesus Christ's sake. Amen.